0: If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 17 and put your finger there and turn with me then over to Galatians chapter 3, I would like to couple these two passages together that the Scripture itself couples. Before we get there, I would want to bring us back around to where I opened up the service and had you meditate on a particular passage of Scripture. As God has shown us what a blessing it is to know that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, it was over that point of doctrine that the pastor that I referenced took issue. It is that first year in my time of ministry in which that doctrine became, uh, well, I should say the first several years of my ministry, that particular doctrine of election became one of the most contentious points of doctrine that I've ever faced in my life with people taking issue with it. I had one young man just out of college that approached me after Sunday school one day and he said, you know, all this stuff about election and and predestination, you know, that's just heady stuff that has no application to it. We just need to be about life. And we should not talk about that, and we should not delve into that. That might be true, but what is that to us? And I'm afraid that that kind of sentiment is just all too common in today's evangelical church. And while we have such a low view of the church, because we have such a low view of God. And it's my hope today with some just small little glimmer that we can peel back a little bit of history and look into the light of eternity a little more clearly to see the greatness of our God and what He is doing for us even today. Now turn your attention to Genesis 17, and we're going to focus again on a narrative of God's covenant. It says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and with thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now if you have your finger in Galatians 3, I'm going to reference this very particular text that Paul references, beginning at verse 15, now hear the word. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he does not say seeds, as in many, but of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was four hundred and thirty years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we attempt to peel back the historical narratives and the narrative arc within the history of your people and even in our lives to see into eternity... This is something only the Spirit can do. And we ask for the faith to be able to see your glory. We ask that as we behold the glory of your face in Jesus Christ, that we would be changed from glory to glory into his likeness. Lord, forgive us of all of our sins. Cleanse us from every spot and any blemish and all the squelching of the spirit that would hinder his work from opening up his word his living word to our lives today that would cloud the the vision that we would need for christ but lord we need to see him so that we do not sink in the waves and the sea we need to see him We need to see Him high and lifted up, whose train fills the temple and whose glory goes throughout all of the earth and where the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. So fill this place with your presence and ignite your word with your spirit to bring forth the fruit for everlastingly in our souls and our lives. For your glory we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's a certain sense of gravity as I delve into eternity. It's a difficult task for any of us. I struggled with this message all week and thinking it was going to be simpler than it was because I began realizing I'm wrestling beyond our sphere of time, space, and matter. And as we think about that, that is exactly what we need. As we've been doing, we've been tracing some of the narrative arcs in Scripture to see how the Scripture themselves are unified, and so that we see, even in those narrative arcs, the reality that is behind them in God Himself working in history. And this morning, the narrative arc of history from Genesis 17 over into Galatians chapter 3 is one that will peel us right off of the page of history into the presence of eternity. So I was thinking about this this morning. I I thought about the fruit and how it is that sometimes we just can take a fruit and it's not really this that I want to put in my mouth, but that's the stuff right there. And I want to peel this back a little bit, and that's what's going on here in the text before us, is you you have this text, and what we need is this, at the center of it all. So whatever problems you face today, whatever fears or worries you have, and whatever burdens you bear, whatever heartache or brokenness you are facing, whether whatever you suffer, both physically or relationally or mentally the answers you need for your needs, the healing that you long for, the courage, the strength, the repair, the restoration, your hope and. Only hope is in the eternal, transcendent, all-powerful, loving God who cares for you deeply and personally. The very God who created this universe, who created you and intimately formed you in your mother's womb long before you knew yourself and your mother knew you, he knew you. And through the mouth of Zephaniah the prophet. The very God who created the universe, the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quieten you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That is my favorite text, music text of all of Scripture, thinking about God Rejoicing over His people with singing. This morning I want to peel back a little of that historical narrative to give us a glimpse into God's greatness and His goodness and His eternal love. I want to preach to you on this eternal covenant of God. Before us are two passages. Two passages of Scripture that are separated by about 1900 years but they are as connected and inseparable as if they were only a few years apart. As we see this covenant with Abraham that we have been looking at in some detail over the past few weeks, this is a covenant that God made with Abraham in history, but it reveals what God has already done in eternity. God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham. This relationship with Abraham was God's initiative. This, Abra- this relationship that God entered into with Abraham was one that God chose Abraham and not the other way around. This relationship that God established with Abraham is one that God told Abraham what he, God, was going to do for him. God set the terms. God was going to bring it about. And it was blessing beyond what Abraham could possibly imagine And this covenant relationship was filled with God's abundance to Abraham and his family, and that is the same covenant that you are into with Christ in God. But in this covenant, God shows himself in Trinity in the covenant with Abraham. And that is an important concept because that Trinitarian life is that which flows out of God himself into our lives and brings us into a Trinitarian relationship, one with another with our God. We've been speaking about a covenant relationship, and this covenant is a special kind of relationship between two or more persons And if you notice here in Genesis 17, once again, I want you to notice the parties of the covenant. As we see in that verse, the parties of the covenant are between God and Abraham and his seed. On the one hand, God, and on the other hand, Abraham and his seed, where Abraham and his seed are inseparable in terms of the other side of that equation. Now that seed of Abraham would include Isaac, and it would include Jacob. It would include the entirety of Abraham's family, and all of those who are children of Abraham by faith, not by flesh. And this relationship... The one that God entered into with Abraham included Abraham's children who would believe in his promises. And therefore, the covenant relationship is just as much with you as it was with him. Now, at this point, it's important to consider and retain the word seed in the text to Abraham and to his seed, to Abraham and to his seed, and I will be a God unto Abraham and to his seed. Seed is a key word for us to consider. Many of the modern translations today use the term descendants or children, and I think they absolutely blow it because they are removing a very important word that the Holy Spirit deliberately has tied together from Genesis 3.15 all the way through that we are supposed to recognize. So therefore, I actually read out of the King James Version, and I did that for the very reason that the King James has retained the word seed. The seed is an important grammatical word that the Spirit of God himself employs It's important because the very nature of this word that the Holy Spirit intends throughout this passage is important to unpack and unlock the very theological meaning behind it. And I want to give us a couple of points regarding seed. If you have your notes in front of you from the the bulletin, hopefully you can follow along. The term seed is a collective noun. The word meaning a collective now means it can be one or it can be many. It can mean a multitude of seeds, it can mean a whole class of seeds. It can be a single seed, but the collective noun describes either a collection or a group of people and things, or it can even mean a single word, a single seed. So the word seed can refer to one seed, it can refer to more than one seed, it can refer to a collection or a group of seeds in a category or class, and that would be a collective noun. Some would call it a collective plural. And when the Spirit desires to incorporate this multi sense in which the noun can be employed, it is best to leave the translation of the gloss seed, which is actually the Hebrew. So, first of all, it's a collective noun. Secondly, the seed is also a messianic word. When God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, we see the connection here, the necessary connection between Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 17.7 all the way to Galatians chapter 3. It's messianic and it points us to Christ. And third, the term seed is a covenantal word. When God made a covenant with Abraham, his promise was to him and to his seed. And that seed would include, indeed, Isaac and Jacob and all of his offspring that would come to faith. Through that covenant succession, through the covenant headship, whose ultimate head is Christ himself. And the singularity in which the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks to us in Galatians 3, I'm not talking about seeds, plural, I'm talking about the seed, Christ, he is coupling together this collective noun with both its singular form, Christ, as the head of the collection of all of his people, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you. And that's why it's so important. The term descendants or children does not do the same kind of thing there. It is a collective noun. It's a messianic term and it is a covenantal term. And all of these are compacted together that gives us this narrative understanding of what's going on. Now the term seed in Galatians 3, if you would turn back there and you can see this because this is the unpeeling of the historical narrative and putting us beyond our realm of time, space and matter. He says in Galatians 3.16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made and he does not say seeds as in plural but of one and that seed is Christ. Now, it's beyond my time and ability this morning with the limited perspective I have, but if you were to go back to Galatians and you wrestle through who the people of the covenant are, who the persons are, you will see that it is Christ in union with his people in covenant with God the Father in a glorious, astounding, unfathomable way. Speaking here as Paul does 1,900 years later, what happened before this covenant when God was establishing and entering into this very special relationship with Abraham and into his seed, we see something of a trinity now being gathered together and us being brought into this covenant love. As we saw from Genesis chapter 17 the parties of the covenant are God and Abraham and his seed. But as that is clarified for us in Galatians 3 what we see is the the, the parties of the covenant are God and Abraham and Christ. And here Paul wants us to see that the covenant was made between God the Father through Abraham to God the Son. And what this does is it takes the focus of this ark right off of the page of history and as we see it's just going to peel back exactly what is there And what it's going to do is it's going to take a little bit of history and take it away so that we can see the core of what's going on. This relationship with Abraham in history intersects with what God is doing in eternity. And we feel the tension here. I've struggled with this here because it is going beyond our realm of understanding. We are earthly creatures bound by time and matter and space. And what we know by the human intellect will be bound to that realm. But what we can by faith transcends our human intellect into the realm of the eternal. Faith in what God promises us, faith in what God reveals to us is not limited to our intellectual understanding. That's hard for us post-enlightenment Western folks who live today who want a rational answer for every question that we have. To reduce it down to a logic of the mind of the intellect, and yet we will not have faith if that is the only realm. But that's what's going on here. We're in the realm beyond humanity. Beyond our realm of comprehension and beyond our realm of understanding. And as we peel back the human history to expose the eternal substance of the middle, the center of it all, the fruit that we're looking for, we're going to see God. I brought this to the pulpit today because every time you peel a fruit, whether it be a banana or orange or grapefruit, I want you to think about that transcendent God peeling history back to show us something of which only faith can comprehend Himself. And as we peel the history back, Abraham and his earthly and human posterity. What we see exposed is this covenant relationship between the Father and the Son. If you just take the historical perspective out for a minute, it is God the Father who is making a covenant with Abraham and his seed, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to the seed, which is Christ. Now, if you remove the historical narrative out of that, what you see is the covenant between the Father and the Son. Between God the Father and God the Son. And that changes everything. And that is what is going on with the seed. And that is why the law which came 430 years after this covenant with Abraham could not nullify that covenant. This covenant relationship is eternal. Nothing in time, no event in history can change this relationship between the father and the son. And the point here is to show us what God is doing in eternity. The intersection here. To there is through Christ in our faith. So let us consider once again that covenant. When that covenant was cut back in Genesis 15. Do you have your Bibles? I want you to turn back to Genesis 15. Genesis 17 was then that aspect where God brought in circumcision, reiterated again the the covenant. But Genesis 15 is where this covenant was cut. Now this context here, and I'll just briefly summarize it, this is when God then once again promised to Abraham his word, his promises of which then Abraham would then receive by faith. And that key verse in verse 6, which has been used throughout the New Testament to show that it is God who then Imputes the righteousness to us through faith, by His grace. And yet it is the cutting of this covenant that was all initiated by God. It was not a bilateral agreement. This was a unilateral agreement. And in the form that Abraham would have recognized in his time... God then takes a slice out of his culture and says, Abraham, I want you to do this because you're going to understand what this means. I want you to take some car- or some animals and I want you to divide them in half. I want you to place some of them over here and some of them over here. And this was a well-known treaty between two suzerain kings of the time in which then the two kings would make a, a treaty and then they would walk down between the carcasses, laid in half, and they said, now, if I go back on my word, let me be like the carcasses. But in this particular form, there was something going to be very different, and Abraham was not one of the parties that went down between the carcasses, only God. Showing that God says, Abraham, if I don't do this, let me be like the carcasses, my word is certain, and it does not require you passing down the aisle. I'm going to do this. You must believe me. And so God alone passes down through the aisle. And it says in Genesis fifteen, seventeen, it says, and it came to pass that when the sunset or sun went down and it was dark, behold there was a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. That's where we get the term cutting of a covenant. Now remember, it was only God who passed through those pieces, binding himself alone to fulfillment of the obligations of that covenant relationship. And Hebrews chapter 6 then speaks of it this way, reflecting back here. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. But notice with me in the text, a little closer look, if you would, in verse 17, there are two figures that are walking down that aisle, not a single figure. It was a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. But it was only God that was walking. What we're seeing here again is a little bit of the peeling back of the historical narrative to see an eternal covenant between the persons of the Godhead which they lovingly invite us into. The covenant relationship between the persons of the Godhead, between the Father and the Son that included the Holy Spirit, was not merely and only in relationship to our salvation, but this relationship in the Godhead among the three persons expresses the very nature of God. God is a covenant God. The covenant is a relationship. And this relationship that God, he himself has with himself is covenantal. And all of our meaningful relationships in this life that we know on earth are rooted in that Trinitarian covenantal relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, where the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And and you have this mutual indwelling, this complete perfection in unity, and this eternal love that is going on between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this covenantal relationship being expressed between the three persons then defines for us every meaningful relationship that we have among ourselves. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father. Jesus says, You are my bride. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers, he calls us his friend. All of these have meaning and definition in this Trinitarian covenantal relationship that God himself enjoys from all of eternity. And our covenant relationship with God then is rooted in and it springs forth from this covenant that God has with himself. And at the very heart of this relationship that God has with himself is, is love, unity, mutual indwelling, and love. God is love. It's not that he's just loving. The Bible says he is love. He did not need us as the objects to express the love because he was loving himself in a Trinitarian fashion covenantally before the foundations of the world. Eternally so. But if this is true of God, that he's a covenant God and where he is mutually indwelling, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where there's perfect unity and this love is the core essence of what's going on and the activity of the Godhead, just know that God always acts according to his nature and never contrary to it. So God enters into this beautiful relationship with Abraham and with us, because this covenantal relation or nature this covenantal relationship is a part of his very nature he didn 't have to do this, but it 's amazing when we think that there is such a, a vast chasm between the creator and the creature, between God and us, that he has now inseparably bound himself to us covenantally. And what he is doing for us in Christ is he has brought us up into the Trinitarian love where there is this steadfast covenantal love that we then enjoy in a presence of a transcendent eternality. With God. So he enters into this covenant relationship with Abram. According to his own nature, it was quite natural for him to do so. And the intersection between the historic framework that's going on and God's eternal being now, we can only connect by faith. We are only children. Of Abraham by faith. We are only in this covenant by faith. We can only understand a little bit of this by faith. And we can only apprehend all of the benefits and the pleasures and the joy and the rest and the peace by faith. So as we peel back a little bit more of that historical skin of this eternal fruit, we could see the activity of God concerning you and me personally well before you were born, well before God said, let there be light, well before he created the heavens and the earth. We're in the realm of the sacred, eternal Of the transcendent, incomprehensible. But we are on sacred ground. The Bible speaks about what God was doing before the foundation of the world. Scientists struggle about the origins of the universe. They go all the way back in time, 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 but they cannot find the point at which it was because they're fixed. In time, and they cannot get out of time. But God says there was a lot going on before time. It is a world beyond the framework in how we were made. It is beyond the framework of our time, but not beyond God's eternality. It was beyond our world, but not beyond God's existence. And this is a realm that is beyond our comprehension, but not beyond our faith. The Bible speaks about the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. That phrase is used several times in Scripture. And as again, I'm going to reference the notes that you have before you on the back, I believe. I started something of this. To help give a reference, I'll just briefly go through this, because I want you to see what was happening before the origin of the universe. Because a lot was going on, and it contained and pertains to you. There are seven categories of activity that God was about before the foundation of the world. Maybe I've grouped them in terms of six, no seven. Let's just briefly go through this because God's love, number one, was vibrant among the persons of the Trinity. John 17, this great high priestly prayer that the disciples could hear Jesus praying out loud in their midst. He wanted to peel back a little bit to let them hear of an eternal conversation between the Father and the Son. And he says, Father, I desire that they whom you gave me be with me where I am. They may behold my glory with which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here it shows that eternal love, this covenant relationship between Father and Son. Number two, what else happened before the foundation of the world? God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 4 says just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in what? Love. This is showing how this Trinitarian relationship springs forth into action before the foundation of the world and how we are united to Christ and therefore incorporated into this trinitarian covenant relationship between father son and holy spirit even before the foundation of the world number 3 we read in revelation 17:8 that there were names written in the book of life or not before the foundation of the world. Number four, God has prepared a kingdom for his elect before the foundation of the world. The Bible speaks of this in Matthew 25, 34. Number five, the father appoints the son to be the mediator and savior of God's elect before the foundation of the world. There are a number of references. But 1 Peter 1.20 says he indeed was foreordained. That doesn't mean that God simply knew ahead of time what was going to happen. That means that God ordained this so that it comes to pass. It was his appointed decree before the foundation of the world, but it was manifest in these last times for you. And this included his eternal, Christ, eternal appointment as prophet, priest, and king. That after the order of Melchizedek, who was king and priest... Eternally so. Number six, we see in Hebrews 4 that all of God's works were finished before the foundation of the world. Now, I'll let you wrestle with that one for the rest of the day. But this actually comes into the context of that eternal Sabbath in which God is expressing to us, and the works, even the creative works, were then seen as completed and finished before the foundation of the world. And in number seven, we see in several aspects the work of Christ that occupied and occurred in history has eternal truth far transcendent above it. The sufferings of Christ were that which was before the foundation of the world, Hebrews nine twenty-five and 26. The atoning work of Christ was that which was before the foundation of the world. He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 18. Our union with Christ is seen in this in Him passage throughout all of Ephesians 1. Even our glorification is speaking of in the order salutus of Romans 8 as already past tense. See, behind the historical peel of the framework in which we live, is God's eternal truth. But his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. But that does not mean his thoughts cannot energize us to appreciate what great God he is and what great things he's done for us. Consider briefly God's knowledge versus our knowledge. This is why it's so complicated to get our minds around. This is why it's incomprehensible for you and me. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But God's knowledge is much different than our knowledge. He stands outside of time. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing and all-comprehensive. Number two, his, his knowledge is immediate. He knows all that is instantaneously and one instantaneous act. Number three, his knowledge is independent. It is not dependent in any way upon us creatures or dependent upon space, time, or matter. It includes all things actual and all things potential. Number four, his knowledge is essential and not relative. Man, you and I, we only know things by properties and relative properties, but not God. God knows them perfectly and directly by their very essence. He knows you in a way that you don't know yourself. He knew you in a time when you were not even yet born. But God's knowledge is also simultaneously and not successive. God's knowledge does not grow from thought to thought or progress from succession to succession. He doesn't grow from a knowing state to an unknowing state. And all that to say that God's thoughts are not like ours. And he comprehends it all in an instantaneous act. We don't even understand and don't even have a framework for that kind of thinking because we are subjects and created in time the way he intends it to be. But he's expressing something that we can only apprehend by faith. I didn't say understand. I said belief. It's outside our realm to intellectually grasp this or to understand this, but it is not outside our realm of faith to know that these matters are true. Our faith in the eternal self-existent God is what brings us into the realm of His covenant love. And as I bring this to a close this morning, I want to shed some light on some application for us. What does that mean to us? You who come in burdened and heavy laden. You who come in with worries and cares. You who come in with sorrows of disappointments of relationships that are broken or troubles and worries about tomorrow. What does it mean for us? First of all, God is a trinity. And he relates himself and to himself covenantally. And as he relates to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenantally, there is the core essence of perfect unity, mutual indwelling, And love. That's an ontological reality with God. But number two, God acts out of his nature and always in accordance to it. And therefore, God's act of creation and redemption is an expression of the very covenantal nature that is true of him. And this is why God relates, and he only relates to people through covenant this covenant relationship. Number three, when God saves us, he brings us then into a deep and profound relationship with himself. A relationship that he has been enjoying for all of eternity. And as each of the members of the Godhead enjoys unity and mutually indwelling with one another and in love, we are brought into that covenantal relationship by the power of the Spirit in Christ before the throne of the Father. And we are brought to the Trinitarian God collectively with one another to live out And in dwelling with one another, not ontologically like God, but through the essence of love, being unified in the spirit and of one mind in these things, and to know and to express and to give thanks and praise to our Creator and our God and our Redeemer, who forever is, and we with Him. Number four, God knew long before we were ever born who we were personally, and he planned our life out particularly. Jeremiah 1.5 expresses this in this tremendous passage when he says in the inspiration of the Spirit, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. His script was already written. That in no way gives us the concept of fatalism. For as God is sovereign in all of these things, and He wants you to know that for a great blessing, He has given you great responsibility to fulfill your greatest joy and living for His glory. Number five, the way to transcend beyond your earthly struggles is to connect with the eternal God, and that can only be done by faith through the power of the Spirit. We're going to connect with eternity, and we are right now through the power of the Word. The Word is what gives us greater faith. It, which, brings faith into the very things that God has promised us. It brings us into connection with God. This is not just the Bible. This is the living word of God which can pierce asunder between soul and spirit and reveal the intentions of the heart. It is a living word, and when we hear it preached and when we hear it read, it is God speaking. We are in the realm of the eternal, but you're not going to connect with that unless you believe it. Number six, as you enter into this covenant relationship with God through Christ, through faith in Christ by grace, there are a lot of good things to know. Everything in your life is working out for good. Everything. All your trials, all your difficulties, all your burdens, It's all working out for your good. God loves you beyond any ability of yours to comprehend. His love for you in Christ far surpasses your comprehension, as he says at the end of Ephesians 3. But he wants you to know a little bit more of of that breadth and width and height and all of the dimensionality of that. But you can't comprehend it. That's how much. God has a tomorrow planned out for you. He simply wants you to trust Him today. And know that God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you essentially, He knows you instantly, He knows you all comprehensively. And He knows what's best for you. Yield yourself. Everything you have, your wife, your children, your car, your house, all your possessions, yield everything up to God. Everything. Deny yourself and, and pick up your cross and follow Jesus and everything that's important or you value in life, just yield it over to Him. All of your dreams, all of your mindset, all of your, your things that you're pursuing, just yield it all up to Him and let Him take it and morph it into something that's well beyond what you can comprehend. And God knows your cares and your burdens. He knows what you came in here with today. And He deeply, deeply cares for you. He desires to relieve you of all of your troubles. And He will certainly do so. Can you imagine that your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, never to be erased if you're trusting in Christ today, that is true of you. And your relationship to God brings you into things that God himself enjoys. And that is why the secret and the, and the, the connection between our burdens of this life and to the glorious joys of heaven comes through this activity of faith and laying hold of God to be able to surpass the wind and the waves and to reach out to Jesus and walk on that water. But God himself enjoys a Sabbath rest and you enter into his Sabbath rest today by faith in Christ, into that covenantal realm of eternality, of Sabbath rest. You enter into this eternal covenantal love of which only he can give to you. This relationship with God brings you into His unity. It brings you into His joy and laughter. It brings you into His rejoicing. And it brings you into His singing over you with great rejoicing. And your relationship with God and faith in Christ brings you into the things that he himself enjoys. It brings you to his feast. God's eternal nature is learned through his historical acts, including what's going on right now in your story. So peel a little bit of that narrative back And keep your focus upon God who is at the center of your life, the center of this world, and yet beyond it in an eternal way. Trust God in his word and get in touch with his eternal presence. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how much we all need this bearing out in our life. And so we ask as we conclude the preaching of your word and come to your table that your spirit would activate us and a fresh faith be poured into us that we might lay hold on that eternal treasure that we have in Christ, laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven and not here on earth, knowing that this time will be but short, but our eternity will go on forever. Lord, for those that are struggling here with burdens and cares and worries and anxieties and health issues and, and all the struggles that they bring. And that this life and this fallen world offers. Lord, we pray that your spirit would touch them with great comfort in the truth of the gospel. That you would give them a peace that passeth all understanding. That they might know a little more of the love that they cannot comprehend. And we ask that your grace would be abundant in all of our lives where our sin has abounded. And we might forever praise your holy name and give you thanks for all of these spiritual blessings from before the foundation of the world, which are true in us in Christ and is being lived out historically in each of our stories today. Lord, may we see more of you and trust you. This is our greatest need. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.